You are now listening to the November 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, this is Brian Winston with the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Today, we will learn about Jude Thaddeus. Last time, when we considered Judas Iscariot, we said the name Judas was a very common name at the time. If someone yelled Judas in an outdoor market, a lot of people would have turned their heads. There are three well-known Judases in the Bible. One Judas was Judas Iscariot in our last episodes. He was one of Jesus' disciples, but sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then committed suicide. The second Judas is the brother of Jesus. Here's Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon and Judas? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas were Jesus' brothers. Of those, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. Judas wrote the book of Jude. Here is the first part of Jude, chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The author of the book of Jude introduced himself as a brother of James, and consequently, many biblical scholars believe this Jude or Judas was a brother of Jesus. The third Judas we will consider today is Judas Thaddeus. Just as the name Simon Peter is a full name, Judas Thaddeus is also a full name. The name Thaddeus means one who is celebrated and loved. The name Judas means to praise. Just as his name, it seems Judas Thaddeus was meant to live a life of loving and praising. A.B. Bruce, the author of the book, The Training of the Twelve, said the following in his book. Of two Judases, Judas Thaddeus praised God while Judas Iscariot complained about Jesus. That's right. Judas Iscariot was full of complaints. For one, he complained about Mary for putting expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and wasting a lot of money. In contrast, the other Judas lived a life of praising God just as his name suggests. The two Judases shared the same name, but that is all they shared. They were polar opposites in the way they served the Lord. In fact, the Bible really does not want us to confuse the two. The Bible could have recorded Judas Thaddeus simply as Judas, but it does not do that. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, and Mark chapter 3, verse 18, he is recorded as Thaddeus in Luke chapter 6, verse 16, In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, he is recorded as Judas, son of James. Incidentally, 
Why would you think Judas Thaddeus was recorded under the same designation as the son of James in the books of Luke and Acts? It's because both of these books were recorded by the same author, Luke. Matthew and Mark recorded Judas as Thaddeus, and Luke recorded him as Judas, son of James, so that the readers would not confuse him with Judas Iscariot. In the same context, John in the book of John mentioned and specifically differentiated them by explicitly referring to Judas Thaddeus as one that was not Judas Iscariot. Here's the first part of John chapter 14, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him. So, we now know why Judas Thaddeus has been recorded in the Bible as Thaddeus or Jesus, son of James. A well-known theologian, Jerome, who was active in the late 4th century to early 5th century, described Judas Thaddeus as the man with three names. The first name was Thaddeus. The second name was Judas, son of James. We just talked about both of these names. And the third name was Labias, as appears in the King James Version of Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. The name Labias came from the word Leb, which means heart, and the name is interpreted to mean one with a warm, loving heart. Today, we're going to learn about the Apostle Judas Thaddeus and draw spiritual lessons the Lord gives us. In John chapter 13, there appears a scene in which Jesus washes his disciples' feet and eats the Last Supper with them. Then, in the next chapter, chapter 14, Jesus proceeds to teach them important lessons. In chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus says, For I go to prepare a place for you. And Thomas asks in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And presses Jesus to let him know the way. Then Jesus replies in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. To that, Philip asks Jesus in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. Then Jesus said, this in verses 9 to 21, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In this line of questions and responses, Judas Thaddeus then chimes in with this question for Jesus. Let's read John chapter 14, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? This is what Judas Thaddeus was asking. Lord, we believe and trust that you are the Son of God because you have shown us that you are God. But why aren't you going to disclose yourself to the world as you have disclosed yourself to us? 
Please show yourself to the world just as you have shown yourself to us. Judas Thaddeus had mission in his heart. His question was a missional request to Jesus to disclose himself to the world as the Christ and the Son of God. As I mentioned earlier, one of the recorded names of Judas Thaddeus is Labias. It means one with a warm, loving heart. This question he asked to Jesus demonstrates he indeed had a warm, loving heart towards other people, especially towards the people of Israel who had been waiting for the Messiah. So Judas Thaddeus made such a mission request to Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah so the rest of Israel would gain faith in him. Then Jesus answered him with the following. Here in verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These verses mean the same as what Jesus said in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. The response by Jesus may not sound like he's answering the question, but he is in fact offering a profound and encompassing answer. Judas Thaddeus asked Jesus, Please reveal to the world that you are God, just as you revealed it to us. And Jesus answered him, I will reveal myself through those who love me and keep my words. God will be revealed through their lives. The spiritual lesson that the Lord gives us today through Judas Thaddeus is that we must be able to reveal God to the world through our lives by loving Jesus and keeping his words. So how do we do that? We will continue to share this story in the next lesson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Meet Dr. Luke. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Um, We are picking this up in uh, the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 16. And we we left off with uh, this time when Paul and the missionary team, Silas and Timothy, just couldn't figure out where to go. God, what do you want us to do? They're on this second mission trip, and the Lord keeps closing doors on them all the time, and so they needed his direction. One of the things God does is he leads us by closing doors. And I got to help me out here because it embarrasses me, but I can't remember the name of that little vacuum thing that goes on the floor. Rumba? Rumba's a dance. No, this is a, okay, the Roomba? Roomba. And you know how that works? It, It has to constantly be bumping into things to be doing the right thing. And sometimes I feel like that as the Lord is leading me, right? I feel like a little Roomba. Yeah, that's the way I feel. Uh, so they, God sent them away from Asia. So they go to Troas, a port city on the Aegean Sea. Look at verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Now he's going to get some absolutely clear direction. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him saying, what does he say? Come on, gang. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Yes. You know, I've wished, God, just give me a vision so I knew where to go. Well, Paul got that. Here's your answer, Paul. This is where you guys are supposed to go to go to the area of Macedonia. Now, uh, look at verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, you may notice this, maybe not, but right here in verse 10, we see that a fourth member has joined the team. It has gone from pronouns of them, they, to now we, us first person, personal pronoun there. So who is joining the group? Well, Luke joins the group. So now it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. This young doctor that they met in Troas is invited to come along. Up until this time, he had been writing Acts kind of as a history of what he's been told. But now, at this point in Acts, you'll see he's writing as someone who was there. And so he says in verse 10, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel. So now Luke, he's there, and he's uh, joined the team. So who was Luke? I mean, really, we've all heard a lot about Luke, but we know very little about him. In all my years, I've listened to a lot of teaching, a lot of sermons, a lot of messages, but I have never heard one on Luke. I mean, Luke involved in something, but not just about Luke. So I think it's about time we meet him and find out a little bit more about him. How about you, gang? Okay. 
So Luke is only mentioned three times in the New Testament, and all three references are given by the Apostle Paul. I'm going to say right off the bat that Luke and Paul are going to be just super close friends and co-workers. So here are some of the things that we know about Luke. I'm just going to kind of share some of the things. And out of these uh, things we learn about him, there is some real personal application. First of all, we know that he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile convert to Christianity. He lived in Antioch. Antioch was the first church planted that was primarily Gentile outside of Jerusalem, okay? So Antioch is where Luke was saved. There were a lot of people who probably were associated with Judaism but hadn't converted, who heard the gospel, and they were saved. And he and Paul for sure would have met there because that was Luke's church, and Paul was the pastor there for a while. So when they're at Troas, it's not like the first time that Paul ever met Luke. We know that Luke was a doctor. Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. He was a very distinguished doctor. He was super well-educated. In order to be a doctor in that day, had to have a super education. A lot of times we think, oh, you know, it's kind of like the, the witch doctor thing in the ancient times. They didn't know what they were doing. But, you know, they had a lot of training. Let me read you what one scholar says about this. At the time of imperial Rome, there was a, an accrediting college at Rome that supervised the licensing of medical doctors. It was called the Collegium Archetorum. It was responsible for examining all those who wanted to practice medicine in every city of the empire. Those newly admitted to the medical fraternity were interned under older physicians, and their methods of treatment were closely supervised, and their mistakes were severely punished. Doctor could even lose his diploma. So we can be assured that Luke was well-educated and as such, he was set apart above the other evangelists and the other disciples didn't have degrees. Paul found in Luke a man with a kindred mind, a man of scholarship and education and attainment, a man to whom he could talk as an equal. So Luke, very well-educated, an excellent physician. And get this, follow me. There were three great centers of medical training. You might say three medical universities in the Roman Empire. One was in Alexandria, think Egypt. Another was in Athens. And the other was in Troas. So Troas is where most likely scholars believe that Luke and Paul met each other at university. Great universities there in Troas. And so it just may have been, we think, that they knew each other before either one of them was saved. And then Luke goes home. He gets saved at Antioch. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he starts beating up Christians, right? He starts persecuting Christians. And you can imagine, here is Luke in Antioch hearing about what what Paul is doing in Jerusalem, and now the persecution's coming their direction. And he's thinking, I know that guy. Let me see. Oh, yeah, he's, he unrolls his parchment. Yeah, he's in the college. Your book right here. I see his name. You know. 
Can you imagine if they knew each other, what that would have been like? Think about what Luke sacrificed to follow the Lord. Here he was a doctor. I'm sure he had a very comfortable living, he had a great lifestyle, but he made a decision that really changed the whole direction of his life, made the costly sacrifice to walk away from, I'm going to say a life, walk away from the comforts of what he could have had in order to become a medical missionary. That's exactly what Luke was. You know, God may call you to sacrifice. And don't think of it right now as, oh. You know, when God calls you to sacrifice, it's like what he's calling you to feels so much bigger than what you're walking away from. Luke was a compassionate physician. Paul calls him the beloved physician. You know, some doctors you're going to love or you're going to hate. And Luke was the beloved physician. I also found out, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that Luke was not the only one in his family that was involved in ministry? You know what I found out? Maybe somebody here knows. You know what I found out? I was shocked. You've heard of Titus, the book of Titus, right? Titus was his brother. Dude. That's amazing, isn't it? I never knew that. Titus was, there's a lot of evidence that he was Luke's brother. So here's a circle of Luke and Timothy and, and Titus and all of these uh, pastors and young evangelists and young pastors all knowing Paul and they're all kind of working together. Uh, what a team. Now, we also know that Luke was a writer. You might think, well, that's a yeah, duh. Isn't he writing Acts? Yes, he wrote the Acts of the Apostles is really the title of the book, the Acts of the Apostles. But that's actually his second book. Okay, that's his second book. And the Acts of the Apostles gives uh, the accurate history of the birth of the church all the way to uh, the time when the church, uh, the gospel message goes to Rome and the Apostle Paul goes to Rome. So that's the book of Acts. But the book of Acts is the second volume he wrote. The first volume he wrote was the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. So we have Luke and we have Acts. And in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke uh, gives the most thorough, comprehensive account of Jesus birth, his life, and his ministry. It's incredible. As I was thinking about it, he starts with before John the Baptist was born, and he went all the way through the resurrection of Christ. He wasn't an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, so he wasn't an apostle. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness, had to minister with Jesus and then be an eyewitness of his resurrection. So he wasn't that, but in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he talks about how he says there's been a lot of accounts that have been written about Jesus' life, and he's, we assume that he's read those. He says, and I've gone and I've talked to the eyewitnesses myself. Think about the people he could have talked to. 
I mean, Luke interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. How else do you think he got that whole story that nobody else talks about in Luke 1 and 2 about, you know, Mary and her song? And, and he talked to John the Baptist's mom. He talked to the other apostles that were alive. He probably talked to sick people who had been, he's a doctor, I'm sure he wanted, I want to talk to this guy who was lame and now is walking around. I want to talk to him. I want to see how that happened. He talked, he had this wealth of people information that he puts together as God inspires him to write this gospel. His books span, when you look at both his books, they span a period of 60 years, both his books. 60 years. His two-volume set begins with the birth of John, ends with the gospel being preached in Rome. He really was the historian of the church. Both of his books add up to a total of 52 chapters. The gospel of Luke is the longest gospel. I said to you, it was the most thorough, it was the most complete. And due to his education, Luke's vocabulary was incredible. He uses, get this, 312 words that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. This dude was smart. His vocabulary was crazy. And listen to this. Luke tells us about six miracles that no other gospels record. He records 35 parables, 19 of them, none of the other gospels record. I'm talking about things like, if Luke hadn't written them down, we're talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, only Luke records that. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, just thinking of some off the top of my head. Oh, and the parable you all love, the prodigal son. Only Luke records 19 extra parables that are not included in the others. In his gospel, he was careful also to explain Jewish customs and traditions and locations so that his audience would understand them because his target audience was not Jews. His target audience was Gentiles. So if he used a lot of Jewish terms or talked about Jewish holidays, he was always careful to explain them so that his readers would understand. This is something else that, am I nerdy right now? Is it okay? I mean, this is Luke. I mean, Luke's two books make him the author of one-third of the New Testament. Paul also writes one third of the New Testament. So these two friends actually write two-thirds of the New Testament. That's crazy. Uh, Luke, one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament, is never talked about. It's just like, oh yeah, Luke. There's so much more to know about him. He was a very humble man. You know, in all the 24 chapters of his, of his gospel, he never, ever mentions himself. 
And in the 28 chapters of his second book, The Acts of the Apostles, he never mentions himself. Think about it. Being a part of the early church from the beginning of the church to the time when the gospel is in Rome and interviewing all of these witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you'd think sometime he would say something about himself, writing about that 60-year time span he never, ever mentions himself. What a humble guy. I want to be like that. How about you? I do. The Lord, the Bible says he hates pride. The Bible says that we should humble ourselves in order that the Lord would exalt us at the proper time. I was reading Romans 8. And I want you to look at what I was reading in Romans 8. So go, go just right next door, to the right, to Romans 8. This is what he writes to the Christians in Rome. He says, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I read Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I read verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Read with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? I read verse 35. Read with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. I'll read on. As it is written for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we more than conquer through him who loved us. Now verses 38 and 39, all of us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. I was reading those words, and it hit me, you guys. Yeah, I was reading these words, and it hit me that nine years later, almost... To the date, nine years later, these Roman Christians that Paul has written to will experience Nero's persecution. Nine years later, the fire will break out. With the fire, the fire broke out. You see, it's like the Lord was warning them ahead of time. The Lord was wanting to equip them ahead of time. He wanted them to remember, look, if I am for you, who can be against you? I want you to remember that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I want you to remember that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. I want you to remember, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For 
You're saying it is written, we're going like lambs to the slaughter. Do you think they remembered this? Do you think they remembered that Paul ended this chapter by saying, I want you to know that there's nothing in heaven or earth. There's nothing you can think of that can separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Do you think they remembered? I hope they remembered this letter was written to them nine years before they go and experience what I read to you earlier. So this is what I think. I think that God gives us his word not only for a purpose today, like right now, he's speaking stuff to you. He's talking to me as I'm, as I'm teaching It's not just what I need today, but God is also speaking his word to me and wanting me to store it up for some time in the future. Who would know that almost 10 years later, they had better have memorized the book of Romans. And you know, books were very expensive, so what most Christians did was they They read the letters over and over, circulated the letters to all the churches, and those Christians in Rome most likely had memorized the letter that was written to them by the Apostle Paul. Those words of comfort, those words of encouragement, those words that called for boldness and bravery in Romans chapter 8, who would have known that they would have needed them nine years later? when they would face famine, sword, danger, peril. And did they ever, boy, did they ever need to know that nothing can separate me, God, from your love. You know, you can go through a whole lot of hell as long as you know that God loves you. You can go through all sorts of things as long as you know that the Lord is right there with you. Now, Paul might have felt like everyone had deserted him except for Luke. But let's say, okay, let's say Luke did desert Paul. Would Paul have been all alone? No. Because Jesus said, I'll never leave you alone. Once I come into your life, he says, I'm with you always. And he told his disciples, just as he was ascending into heaven after his resurrection, he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth, the end of the days. He says, I'm always going to be with you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul, even if Luke had deserted you, you know you're not all alone. Wow, easy to be discouraged when you're in the worst prison in the world and you're cold and you're hungry and you kind of know you're going to die and you're sick and your friends are not around you. But because you've had God's word treasured in your heart, you have something to hold on to because you know that nothing can separate you. Listen, I know the Lord's speaking to somebody. I mean, we can say, oh yeah, I know the Lord's speaking to all of us. But, but this is, you know, sometimes when you hear something, you read it, 
It's like the word of God has Velcro on one side and you have Velcro on you. And as you're reading, just sticks. And read it one more time. Read it one more time. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate, I'm going to say, you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. We are never alone. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, I want you to look at words that are not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. They're not recorded in any of the Gospels. They're words of Jesus that you'll only find in Hebrews, chapter 13. You go to the right, to the book of Hebrews, Paul, 1 Timothy, Titus. Hebrews is right there, chapter 13. It's the latter part of verse 5 and verse 6. For he has said, and these are words of Jesus that are not recorded anywhere else in the New Testament. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Highlight those words or put a star on the margin. Make some kind of a notation. Verse 6, read with me. So we can what? Confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not what? Fear. What can man do to me? Well, what's the worst somebody can do to you? Well, there's a lot of bad things people can do to me. The very worst somebody could do to me is they kill me, but is that the worst thing that could happen to me? No. I mean, the worst thing that could happen to me is I were to die. But Christians never die. Unbelievers experience a death that leads to hell. When we die, we simply separate from our bodies And we're immediately in the presence of the Lord. So, I mean, actually, if you are killed or you die, you're separated from your body and you enter into the presence of Jesus. So, okay, that's the worst that could happen. So the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Why do I trust the Lord as my helper? And I have the encouragement that what can people do to me? Because Jesus said... The end of verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Okay, this is for somebody. I looked up the Greek here. I was interested in what this is, what is this saying? I mean, it's just little, you know, phrase from Jesus. And well, did I find something that translators don't translate because it might sound awkward. And so they don't translate exactly what the Greek says. And you'll understand why. They're not making a mistake. It just doesn't sound like good English. They say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But actually, it says, I will not ever, I will not ever, Forsake you ever. 
There's double negatives. I will not, not, I will not, not. And that's the strongest way in the Greek language to emphasize something. I will never. And so the amplified translation, I think, translates it the very best. For God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let you down, or relax my hold on you, assuredly not. Amen? Can I read it one more time? Read it one more time, then we'll clap. Amplified translation, Hebrews 13, 5. For God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down or relax my hold on you, assuredly not. Now we clap. Amen. Praise the Lord. The Lord is hanging on to us. The Lord has given us his word to not only encourage us right now, but guys, be in the word because we have no idea what might be coming tomorrow, the next year, nine years from now. But what God pours into us now is gonna be there and it's gonna make us ready for whatever we might need to face. Thank you, Lord, for a man like Dr. Luke. Thank you, Lord, for a man who committed his life to helping your man, Paul, get through his ministry so that Paul could bless the world, not only with his preaching, but by writing down the truth, the inspired words that have encouraged millions of other Christians and are encouraging us right now. I just have to say, thank you, Luke. It's been great getting to know you, amen? Don't forget that the sum total of all of this is that God is with you. God is preserving you. God is keeping you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have looked at this man you've used to write one-third of the New Testament, we do so with super gratitude. Thank you that he remained a useful person throughout his life. We want you to use us as well. We might not do all that Luke did, but whatever career path we're on, whatever experience we have had, Lord, we are open for you to use that to help somebody else who's doing something for you that we could not do ourselves. And as we have looked here at the very end about how we are never alone, we could never be in a prison-like situation all by ourselves because you will not, you will not, you will not in any degree leave us helpless or forsake us 
or let us down or ever relax your hold on us. With that encouragement, we leave with strength to move forward in our service and testimony for you. We thank you for these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Be afraid.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Peter made known his coming. He's coming back to judge. Therefore, you need to repent. God has fixed a day in which you will judge the world through a man, having appointed him, right? Jesus Christ. But Peter had made known this truth. And notice he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's a very interesting word because he doesn't use the word of a testifier. He's not talking about a testimony here. He actually uses the word opti, which speaks of an onlooker or a spectator, who could be, obviously, an eyewitness. But he's not emphasizing the idea of testimony, which the word eyewitness seems to emphasize in our language. You could translate this, we were onlookers. We were spectators. We were onlookers of his majesty. Indeed, we saw in Matthew chapter 17, I'm going to read that for you. Six days after Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And then look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Contrast to the bad guys, we actually experience the reality of his majesty. It's actually true. It's not a fable. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And then Luke chapter 9, verse 29. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, Luke writes, And his clothing became white and gleaming. They saw his majesty. They saw his majesty. The term majesty speaks of magnificence, greatness, splendor. They saw his majesty, Peter says. We were onlookers of his majesty. And so within this, we see a privilege like none other. A privilege like none of that Peter was privy to. Peter was a spectator to the majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same majesty which will be seen when he comes back in glory. And notice, not only did Peter see him in glory, Peter was an onlooker to Jesus receiving honor and glory from the Father. Look at again verse 16 then to 17. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were onlookers or eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, more explanation. For when he, that's speaking of Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance, or literally the word voice there, as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And you might remember that Elijah and Moses were with the Lord Jesus discussing his departure. And Peter says in Luke, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and Moses and Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And then the cloud overshadowed them. And then he heard the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Peter is an onlooker, an eyewitness to his majesty. And then we have the tremendous declaration that he heard. Such an utterance, you could translate the Greek word phone, such a voice was made to him by the majestic glory. Speaking of God the Father in context. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And on a side note, God is not pleased with our own actions and interactions unless Christ is behind it. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. It is impossible to please God apart from faith. God is pleased with Jesus Christ, but he was also pleased to crush him that we could be saved and then we could have him live in us. And when we abide in Christ and trust in him, his word in us, he is pleased when we walk by faith and obedience. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he says here, verse 18, we ourselves heard the utterance, literally the voice made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What is Peter saying? We had a tremendous true experience where we saw Jesus in his glory and we heard from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Yet we're going to see in contrast, he's going to say there's something that's even more sure than that. Look at verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word, made more sure. We're going to see that prophetic word made more sure that it is certain, reliable, or trustworthy. Think about the context here. Peter has written these believers. It is his second letter. It is scripture. You can look in chapter 3. He talks about that, how Paul's writings are scripture. It is the written word of God. It is scripture. And he has written about the tremendous realities that we have everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. We have his magnificent and precious promises, which enable us to escape the corruption of the world that is by lust. That we have everything we need for a relationship with Jesus through his word. And we need to step out by faith, manifesting his character, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And if those things are being manifest and are ours, we are useful and fruitful in our relationship with Jesus. Therefore, it's always the right thing to be ready to remind you, to wake you up that you could call it to mind. Because we didn't follow slick stories when we made known to you the coming of the Lord Jesus. But we were onlookers to his glory and honor that he received from the Father. But yet, even in light of that, we have something more sure. As he'll say, the prophetic word, and as we'll see in context, it is the scriptures, the written word of God. Brother and sister, at the end of Peter's life, his last letter, and Paul's last letter, and the end of his life, they both emphasize the scriptures as sufficient. 
The scriptures, the written word, 2 Timothy 3.17, was able to equip us for every good work. It's God-breathed. And Peter says, we've received everything pertaining to the life in God through the true knowledge of him, 1 Peter chapter 1. And even though Paul himself was caught up to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says boasting about it is unprofitable. It's unprofitable. Peter is laying the case that everything we need is found in the written word of God, and the bad guys are going to assault that very subtly. That's what we're going to see in chapter 2. Everything we need is in the word of God. Peter was an onlooker, a testifier to a tremendous event that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote in the scriptures and described. Peter was an onlooker. You see, we're going to see that we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have experiences, and we can look back and say, wow, Lord, what you did, we praise you for that. But we do not base our faith and our relationship with Jesus on the experiences that we have. Because by nature, experience is interpreted by us. And Scripture, as we're going to see, there's only one interpretation. Therefore, it is absolutely reliable because it is God-breathed. So if anyone could rely on experience, it would have been Peter. Yet notice, instead of human experience, rather than human experience, or even divine experience here in Peter's life, Peter exhorts us to heed the more reliable, sure word. And I want to read through from 16 up through 19, and that's our last verse, which we'll focus on today. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and such an utterance was made as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard the utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And now we'll look at this next verse next week. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy of Scripture or prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. The implied contrast is we had this experience, but you and we all now have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to pay attention to. Verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. In context, the prophetic word he's speaking of here, prophecy, speaks of that which is spoken forth. There were God's prophets who spoke forth his word, thus saith the Lord. It's God's word coming forth, as we're going to see. But he elaborates that in verse 20, but no prophecy of scripture. The word scripture, graphe, means written word. We get our word graphite from that. He's speaking of the written word, and that's what he has given already. He talks about Paul's writings later on as scripture, as the rest. He says, we have. Now, there's some interesting things here. Throughout 16 to 18, he's saying, we did not follow, speaking of apostles, when we may know to you, speaking of those believers, right? And then here we have in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic words. Is he speaking of the apostles only? And you do well, which we know who that is. Well, I think as we're going to see, that's certainly the case. The apostles were the ones who brought forth the word of God. The foundation, Christ brought it forth through them, the apostles and prophets, right? We have the word. But then he says here, which you 
do well to heed. So you have it too, whether it's just them or not. We all have it now, which you do well to heed, which we possess. It's ours. It's ours. We have the more sure prophetic lagos. It's ours. We have the word of God. We have the word of God more sure. You know, it's amazing when people get caught up in religious experience. They say, oh, yeah, I believe in the word of God. Yes, yes, yes. But you look at what they're really trusting in, and it's their experience. If that is you, you need to confess that. Or you are entrapped or ensnared by that for your whole walk. So we're going to see. We have the word made more sure. We're going to talk about that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. And by the way, the Spirit of God bringing forth the Word of God and thus helping us understand the Word of God who is in us is inherent to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Corinthians are all messed up. There's all kinds of stuff that's going on there, but God is gracious to address that through the Apostle Paul. And he's going to address, really, in the first three chapters, their boasting, their pride. And he's going to show how it's the exact opposite in the way that he came to them. There was no pride in the way he came. He came in fear and trembling, and he didn't come with wisdom or superior speech proclaiming the testimony of the Word of God. First Corinthians chapter 2, I'll just back up here as a great passage. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with spirit of speech or of wisdom proclaiming you the testimony of God. That should be in every seminary class for preaching, by the way. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. These are the guys who are saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paul, I'm a this or that. We're really great. But Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. This is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. But we speak, what does he say? God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard. This is from God, by the way. No eye seen it, no ear has heard it. He says, and things which have not entered into the heart of men, this is God's thoughts, God's word, as we're going to see, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them. We have this through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Notice what he says in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that what? We might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. We have the prophetic word made more sure. We have the word of God. It is ours. We possess it. Tremendous, tremendous reality. What a privilege. What a privilege. We have the word made more sure. More than experience. We walk by faith and not by sight, brothers and sisters. Now, notice he says we have back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. The term more sure, basically the term literally meant an anchor. 
And it came to speak of that which is sure or steadfast, that which is reliable or certain. As we're going to see in verses 20 and 21 next week, the scriptures are not up to man to interpret. They have an intended meaning by God. Experience is not that. Experience is interpreted by man. Experience is decided by man what it means. We walk by faith, brothers and sisters, not by sight. Thereby, its very nature, experience is not sure, not reliable, not steadfast, not firm. It is the scripture, the word of God, which is reliable, sure, and steadfast. God's word alone, the written word of God, is faithful and sure.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.